Oh yeah, brother, it's the Grokster. What you gonna do when the 24-inch pythons and Grokamania run wild on you, brother? Good afternoon, I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, nanoparticles, space sex, and loser fish. Our guest this week is Professor Dudley Hirschbach, who will talk about molecular dynamics and voting systems. Also, you can find out what is peak oil. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week. Right here on Berkeley Grok's. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And it looks like we have a very special guest. Jason Kenya. Oh, yeah. It's our man from Kenya. How you doing, man? I'm not too bad. It's good to have you joining us again in the studio. Oh, this is perfect. I just love the place. <laughs> How's the continent? Oh, so far it's becoming a little bit cold and I almost think about home. <laughs> so how is science treated in Kenya? Uh, I'll say science is very important to Kenya because Kenyans are farmers, so we need always a backup to know much about the science. You know, one of the interesting things that I've been reading is that Kenya has like the highest penetration of solar electric panels. They've actually adopted it quite readily yes. than here. Uh-huh. Is your home powered by the uh, solar panels? I'm sorry to say for hours, so far we're using electricity, but the government is trying to change that into solar panels because that way it becomes a little bit more cheaper to the government and that way we save uh, pollution, a lot of pollution. So like everyone from the farmland in the rural areas can also get their own electricity now? Yeah, because pretty much before that people were using a lot of wood, logs, so that way depleting our, our forests. Well, it's, it's always good to have you on the program, and so hopefully we'll be hearing more from you in the future. <laughs> All right, thanks, All right. Thanks for joining us. So, Charles, what's it like to have sex in outer space? Imagine blissful. <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly. Transcendental. <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out, you know, much as this might seem like an out-of-the-world issue... <laughs> It's actually something that um, a group of advisors telling at NASA that they should consider as part of missions that are extended for a long period of time, for example, those going to Mars. Mm, right. And it turns out people staying in these close quarters and working all the time and being isolated could lead them to possible aggressive behavior mm. on top of their sexual needs. Well, you know, castration is always an option. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's one of their um, suggestions that maybe consider crew members who seem Lower to have the normal less, yeah, less need for sex or don't need it as a form of uh, validation. <laughs> okay. Uh, that pretty much rules out males. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did go to a monastery for college. So. True enough. But there was really no stimulus at, at Caltech oh, to, okay. to provoke such a response. <laughs> Actually, there was an incident in uh, one of the recent simulations. Someone dropped some soap. <laughs> it was actually a simulation of a mission done by a Russian crew and an international 
participants. And for some reason, one of the Russian members tried to kiss a Canadian researcher after uh, two of the Russians had gotten into a bloody fight inside this uh, simulator. Uh-huh. Wow. And so, you know, these kinds of experiences suggest that the idea of uh, sexual and aggressive behavior have to be addressed and cannot simply be ignored, as previous reports have done. That's that's always the way with science is to ignore things that are a little <laughs> socially unacceptable. <laughs> or, there's a funny story of one of the early neurophysiologists, Wilder Penfield. He mapped the body map on the brain, uh-huh. and there's this large area of the brain that he couldn't map anything to, and it was taking up a huge part of the brain, this empty spot, and he couldn't figure out what it was until somebody suggested, well, you're not really stimulating all parts of the body, are you? <laughs> and apparently he had neglected to stimulate the genitals. As part. Oh, and apparently it takes a larger uh, Yes, part. it's quite large in, as far as the representation of the brain. <laughs> Not surprising, but... But anyways, this was a report by the National Academy of Sciences, NASA, and uh, there's a very nice article in uh, The New Scientist. All right, well, since uh, it's already turning out to be our sex show, (laughs) let's move on to how can you get the chicks? (laughs) I thought it was pheromones, right? That's... The other way, of course, is just to knock out the alpha male. You mean Bill Gates? You know, I really haven't seen him carousing that much, but (laughs) I'm sure he's quite the ladies' man. (laughs) So fish, apparently, who have very defined social hierarchies, Mm -hmm. they actually will remain subordinate to a more dominant fish. And once that fish leaves, actually, they will start taking on the characteristics of more dominant fish, and then they will, as a result, become more likely to procreate and mate with the other members of the species. You mean these aren't the fish that mate with each other and then try to eat each other up, right? (laughs) No, not that kind of fish, although that's kind of kinky if you ask me. (laughs) So in the chiclet fish, Astatotilapia bertoni, these fish apparently will display the more dominant male characteristics once the more dominant male is taken out. Mm. But the interesting thing is researchers then looked at the expression of genes in the fish to Mm -hmm. see what happened. And it seemed like within minutes they started overexpressing what's called an immediate early gene called EGR1. And this shows that within just a few minutes social cues can change the brain chemistry of the brain to lead to changes in behavior. Wow, and this leads to changes in the transcription of these genes. Right, of different types of genes, yeah. That's amazing because it seems you know, there's the notion that we don't have control or the environment does not influence the gene expression so much, but Mm. now it seems like there's strong evidence for that. And it's curious exactly how the effects of just the presence of a dominant male is affecting these other fish. Right. So anyway, the point is either knock out the dominant male or increase the expression of your immediate early genes. That's what I need. (laughs) Published in PLOS Biology. So what do you smoke to get high, Charles? I'm high right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's on the Grok show, right? Yeah. <laughs> How about carbon nanoparticles? I haven't tried that. Where can I get some? <laughs> Just from your car exhaust, you get tiny particulate matters. Oh. A lot of them are carbon-based. Okay. And those, unfortunately, are the ones that cause respiratory and cardiovascular problems. But you can't get high off them. Probably not. I mean, unless there's some other interesting fumes that go along with it. There are, actually. Right. But it turns out there is a study which shows that these same carbon nanoparticles can uh, induce the clotting mechanisms in blood. Really? Yeah. It, it binds to one of the receptors in platelets and it activates them. 
are they trying to develop this platelet clotting agent? Uh, yeah, it'll be very useful if they can find a very good system where you have these particles that can induce platelets to aggregate or clot when they need to be. But this raises the danger that nanoparticles uh, from nanotechnology could diffuse in the environment and right. cause unknown damages to the screen with your receptors. Right, right. They uh, looked at four or five different types of nanostructures, particles themselves, nanotubes, these are the very basic single-walled ones, or two- and three-walled nanotubes. And it turns out the, uh, the nanoparticles with the exception of the buckyballs, the round, perfectly mm -hmm. SC60s, with the exception of that, those are the ones that seem to induce the highest rate of clotting, and followed by the single wall, you know, double wall and triple wall nanotube. We'll have to wait to see which one comes out as being the best clot buster. Because <laughs> <laughs> my arteries, years of Kentucky Fried Chicken have... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so this was interesting work carried out at the University of Texas Health Center at Houston and Ohio University, and you can read a very nice article, Science Daily. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grosh listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, Professor Dudley Hirschbach joins us to talk about molecular conversations. So stay tuned. This is Berkeley Grox. You're listening to. Well, we have a very special guest today, uh, Nobel laureate Professor Dudley Hirschbach. He's a professor of chemistry at Harvard University, and he's been involved in many different disciplines. And among his other honors, he's had the distinction of being a voice on the popular show The Simpsons. Professor Hirschbach, it's a pleasure to have you here on the show today. I'm glad to be here. To begin with, could you uh, describe a little bit about the work that led up to your Nobel Prize? Sure. I enjoy talking to general audiences in these terms. Suppose you could only study human psychology by flying a blimp over a stadium and listening to the murmurs and shouts of the crowd. You would not be able to get too far, I trust, in figuring it all out. Uh, compared with the ability to eavesdrop on conversations between pairs of people in a crowd or even ask them questions as psychiatrists do. Well, chemistry, of course, usually is done of necessity in the bulk matter where you have zillions of molecules banging into each other, averaging out all the interactions that would help you understand what really happens at the molecular level. It's so fundamental. And we were able to develop a method that, for a pretty wide range of reactions, made it possible to study what happened in individual encounters of pairs of molecules. And the method is, in principle, very rudimentary. First, you need a vacuum system, which means you pump away the molecules that ordinarily would fill some vessel. They're not very big, maybe two or three feet in 
diameter, that kind of thing. And then you introduce streams, very tenuous streams of molecules. If the molecules were the size of humans, the spacing between them would be, say, 20 feet or so, typically. Mm -hmm. And then these cross. Most of them miss or just slightly graze one another. But from the grazing deflections, you can learn something about the long-range forces that are important for many phenomena. And what we're most interested in is the close, intimate collisions, where they really smack into one another and rearrange chemical bonds and make new products, which then fly through the vacuum, no collisions experienced, and hit our detectors. We've got a hard, challenging problem often to develop sensitive enough detectors and tell us information that they carry uh, as they fly about the forces involved in making and breaking the bonds, the fundamental chemical act. So their direction, their speed, how rapidly the atoms in the molecule are vibrating, uh, the direction in which they're tumbling and rotating, all those we can get at now with the aid of laser spectroscopy, mass spectroscopy, modern techniques, learn so much about what actually happens in the elementary chemical event. So that's the, that's the essence of it. Great. Um, so yesterday I went to your talk and you alluded to the, um, the bohemian nature of science, the free thinking process. Uh, is that one of the inspirations for you to be a scientist? <laughs> well, uh, I was then speaking of the historical uh, interaction of one of the founders of molecular beam work, Otto Stern, whose mentor was Alfred Einstein. And the fact that back then, science was definitely, especially that kind of science, sort of theoretically oriented physics, uh, it was definitely a bohemian kind of thing. It was a lot like poetry. Mm -hmm. It was an art form. Now today, of course, it's very different. And yet some of that character still exists because... In science, uh, the really frontier science is very artistic in, mm -hmm. in character. That is, it's a matter of trying to find new perspectives, new approaches, new ideas uh, that open up uh, a new way of looking at things. And in the physical sciences, what do you think are some of the more important or interesting problems that are going on right now? Everyone knows about practical problems. That is, there are lots of opportunities in materials science and very exciting progress because there's a whole new world at the nano level that has really not previously been explored very mm -hmm. much. So wonderful things are happening there. Many young people, quite wisely, have flocked to that domain. But chemistry is completely revolutionizing biology as well. We speak of chemical biology. It used to be that biologists didn't want too much detail what was going on chemically. They'd say, uh, we'll have this cycle. This begats that, begats that, begats that. <laughs> but what it is at the molecular level, they didn't want to get into. But now, with our understanding of genetics and all at the molecular level, we realize that it's opened up this vast vista. It's kind of like uh, you could compare it with astronomy, where there are all these stars and galaxies that we're exploring with telescopes and all, and uh, radio astronomy, all these wonderful tools. Well, it's much like that in the world of biology. And there's a merging of the chemical understanding of 
again, making and breaking bonds. That's the most fundamental thing that happens in chemistry. Um, then merging that with the whole culture and uh, biological perspective that's been built up over the decades is a very exciting frontier area. Another one I like to point out that's uh, uh, less well recognized right now is uh, geochemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, to try to work out what may have happened, say, in the evolution of the Earth mm -hmm. uh, from its aggregation in the, in the uh, domain that usually ast astronomers are, are thinking about to developing into a place suitable for life. There are a lot of chemical questions that come up. Right. Uh, many people have heard, of course, of this uh, really only fairly recently discovered deep sea vents where there are forms of life no one imagined could be uh, found in such extreme conditions of temperature and pressure. Mm -hmm. So, again, great opportunities for chemistry to clarify and recognize new possibilities. Chemistry now is going after nano, bio, and geo, or they should go after <laughs> geo as well. <laughs> and I want to ask you, uh, are you concerned about how basic science is being funded here in the U.S. today? There have been increasing concerns that a lot of the research that's being carried out has to uh, have more uh, economic benefits. Uh, for example, uh, I believe there was a directive in the NSF that 80% of the uh, research being funded should have direct economic benefits. Is this a trend that worries you? I would even generalize uh, beyond that question in that I think the great strength of American society is its pluralism. That is, there's lots of ways to get from one place to another in the U.S. There's not just one channel that will permit you to do something or other. We have a much broader spectrum, for example, of educational institutions in this nation than mm -hmm. uh, almost any other, maybe I think all, any other nation and all. And what your question uh, brings to mind is uh, the danger that I think is genuine that... Uh, if this attitude you described becomes too pronounced, we lose a lot of the flexibility we need in science. I like to emphasize that what basic science does is extraordinarily practical. Nature speaks to us in many tongues, and they're all alien. The most practical thing you do is find out one of nature's dialects, decipher it, and you'll discover she left all these messages that we couldn't read before. Mm -hmm. That's what basic science is getting at, to understand nature's language. Uh, and if we shortchange that too much, we'll get stagnant. We won't be able to move on that much. Uh, so taking these goals only and saying 80% has to be practical, well, what's practical? You don't really recognize the big changes, usually, until later. For example, the whole field of nanochemistry really grew out of the discovery of buckyballs, carbon-16. That had existed, that special form of element, elemental college, uh, carbon, since the days of the cavemen. It must have been in the ashes of their fires. <laughs> but how was it discovered? It was discovered in a vacuum supernuclear beam experiment because there was an exceptionally big peak at carbon-60. 
if, if you'd wanted to do something for material science, you certainly would not have started out by expanding carbon vapor into a vacuum. <laughs> right. See what I mean? Yeah. So by, uh, it was another of many, many examples where basic curiosity-driven research winds up opening up a huge domain. Mm-hmm. And if you are too narrow-minded in how you proceed to support science, you're going to miss some big ones like that. And I actually have a question in uh, physical chemistry. Uh, scientists are still trying to find out how molecules, water molecules, align in ice. Uh, what are some of the exciting developments going on there? Well, there are many forms of water. If you look at the pressure-temperature diagram, you find what many versions of what we call phases of water that uh, differ just in the way you suggest, that is the arrangement of packing of the water molecules. And as you also know, that they really are a network. I mean, water is like mushrooms. You know, uh, you probably heard in Michigan, they discovered the, what they think is the world's largest plant. It's all one plant, but uh, thousands of mushrooms popping up in the woods hmm. that are under the earth are all connected to one enormous plant. And that's uh, not unique, but it's unique in size, that particular one. Right. So with water and the hydrogen bonding between the water molecules, you need to think of it as a sort of great uh, mattress-like thing, a lot of flexibility, and under different conditions, these can flip around in different ways. Uh, you probably could invent some child's toy or whatever with the little magnets where the hydrogen atoms are <laughs> and you juggle it around and you right. find like a Rubik, uh, Rubik's Cube kind of thing. Lots of different combinations. Mm-hmm. So um, that almost means you need to think of new ways to characterize that kind of material. Right. Uh, we tend to think in the classic way of crystals or liquids, or gases, mm-hmm. but there's sort of intermediate domains as A dynamic well. system. Yeah, yeah, very dynamic, yeah. And finally, I just want to ask you about your work with developing different voting systems, uh, ones that could better express what the public wants. Uh, to begin with, could you perhaps tell us about Arrow's theorem? Yes, I'd be happy to say a word about that. Of course, uh, it, w- it was not just the 2000 election, but uh, that I'd read years before about uh, science of elections and points out a fundamental problem that most people don't think about, but everyone can recognize immediately. If you have more than two candidates in an election and allow voters to vote for only one, Mm -hmm. you can get results that are clearly unsatisfactory in a democratic election, because the aim of the election is to choose the candidate acceptable to the widest range of the electorate. Right. But as you can probably think of examples where, say, you had three finalists in a senatorial race and two appealed to the broadest segment of the electorate, they split that segment in such a way that the third least appealing to the broad segment... Mm -hmm wins under this one-person, one-candidate vote system. In fact, there's an extensive theory of elections that's developed over 300 years, and especially in the last 50 years since Arrow's theorem that you referred to, that allows you to analyze different schemes. Mm. 
Most people don't even think there can be a different scheme, but of course <laughs> there can be, and many of it have been explored. Arrow's uh, theorem came about this way. He drew up five criteria that you would like an election in a democratic society to fill and showed there was no scheme that could fulfill all five. But the same analysis allowed you to show that some schemes for voting were better than others. Mm -hmm. And the method we have, which just allows you to vote for one candidate, no matter how many are on the ballot, is actually the worst possible. You cannot devise one that's worse for a, an election. So that's the first point to emphasize. Mm -hmm. And the next question is, well, what ought we do about it? Well, it turns out the simplest from a practical point of view, is also the best from a theoretical point of view. It's something called approval voting. Mm -hmm. You simply allow, if there are more than two candidates on the ballot, for a voter to mark the ballots uh, for however many candidates they favor holding or approve of the office holding the office. They don't need to even list them in order. In fact, for arcane reasons, it's better not to. You can get into some okay. tricky things where it fosters insincere voting and so forth. All those are least damaging in mm -hmm. the case of simple approval voting. You just check, yes, I want this candidate or I approve of this candidate. Uh, you may not approve of all of them equally, but it doesn't matter. You just check the ones you would approve at least holding the office. That would actually have huge benefits in our system because... Both major parties are vulnerable to a minor party. Mm -hmm. If the minor party candidate you know, takes away part of the vote for one of the major parties, right. it can tip the scales. That's what happened in Florida in 2000. Mm -hmm. Nader got 94,000 votes. And as you know, the decision was only 500 and some between Bush and Gore. Yeah. It's pretty clear that uh, the, the, if, the, if you had approval voting, a lot of the Nader voters would have wanted to vote knowing that Nader wouldn't be winning anyway and it wouldn't matter. Right. Uh, they would vote uh, for the major party candidate they felt was least evil uh -huh. or whatever, the lesser, <laughs> and they would have favored Gore, and so we would have had a completely different result. Yeah. Uh, but the way it would work is uh, you just add up the votes, and the one with the most approval votes wins. So it it would also help the minor parties because now the voters could express their true political judgments mm. more fully mm -hmm. and you'd see how many people really favored the third party candidate. Now many of them don't do that because they know it typically works to favor the, uh, disfavor the major party candidate they prefer as the least of two issues, lesser of two easels, right. and favor the one they use. So the 2000 thing is a perfect example the, Gore, the Nader voters, in effect, wound up electing Bush, mm -hmm. and Bush feels no political responsibility to do things that the Nader voters would like. Mm -hmm. And that's the opposite of what ought to happen if a politician benefits from one constituency of the electorate. And democracy, that means they should react to do things in the direction that part would favor. So approval voting would be very easy to implement, but mm -hmm. it's a mental thing. People don't, oh, 
I haven't done it. Now, the founding fathers in the age of reason were very experimental. Our whole nation was an experiment. Our constitution, everything else. Yeah. But now, oh, no, you're all frozen. You can't imagine you can change it. What might happen is if some state adopted it for primaries, mm-hmm. which is actually very important because in primaries you may have five or six candidates running, and so the least representative one gets a big edge because the others are going to split up the major part of the electorate. So it's, it's particularly ridiculous in primaries, our present system. But if a state would adopt approval voting for a few years, say five-year trial, right. then people would learn about it and discover, oh, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. That's the best hope. Okay. Well, Professor Hirschbach, I guess we're running out of time. Uh, it's been a real inspiration. Thanks for uh, coming by. My pleasure. Thank you. And we were just talking to Professor Dudley Hirschbach, Nobel laureate and professor of chemistry at Harvard University. This is Berkeley Grosh you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll find out what peak oil is. So stay tuned. the answer to last week's question of the week. It's our man from Kenya. Hello. Uh, last week's question, which was, what is peak oil? The answer would be, uh, it's when the graph hits the maximum level. All right, then. And now it's Sean Connery with this week's question of the week. Where are we going to find Debrite? And what is it? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you'll be able to escape the rock. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.